0: This episode is sponsored by our friends over at H&E Publishing. They're a Reformed, Evangelical, and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, Biblical Spirituality, Christian Living, and Theology. To see their full list of titles, check out their website at com. That's H-E-S-E-D and E-M-E-T dot com. On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. James Renahan about Hansard Knowles. We cover topics like, who is Knowles? What kind of theological contributions did he make? Uh, what did he think of confessionalism and piety? And other questions like this. As always, if you have thoughts about the show, or episodes, or ideas just in general, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at com. We love hearing from our listeners. Now, For the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage our listeners to think both deeply and clearly about issues, especially those that are theological in nature, uh, though we tie in a lot of history and philosophy and different things into that. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak.
1: And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: And today we have the pleasure to introduce to you Dr. James Renahan, and we're going to talk about one of the original, I guess, particular Baptist or Baptistic Congregationalist, whatever your preferred terminology is for that group, uh, Hansard Knowles. And Dr. Renahan, I guess I'll let you introduce yourself, think, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, just who you are, where you're at, what you're doing, uh, before we get into talking about uh, this figure.
2: Sure, thanks. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to be with you guys uh, today. Um, I am president of IRBS Theological Seminary in Mansfield, Texas. Um, we've been here for just exactly two years. Um, before that, for 20 years, I was uh, the dean of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies at Westminster Seminary in California. Um, and before that, I was a church planting pastor in my hometown in Massachusetts. i um, been married to my wife for 42 years, and we have uh, five grown adult children and 11 grandchildren, and um, seeking to serve Christ as best we can.
0: Massachusetts, Texas, and California, that's quite the uh, range <laughs> of locations.
2: Yeah, well, um, we, of course, we both grew up there, and um, I've also pastored in New York, State, upstate New York, and then uh, went to school in uh, New Jersey, and we lived in Wisconsin while I was doing my PhD in Illinois, so we've been around a little bit, but the longest in, in our marriage, the longest we lived anywhere was 20 years in Southern California uh, in San Diego County. And you uh, can't beat that.
0: Awesome. And I noticed you've got your Doctrine and Devotion shirt on. So <laughs> you're, you're repping Joe and Jimmy on, on our podcast. I don't know how I feel about that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Of course, it's not video, and I just happened to put it on this morning, but uh, love those guys. That's awesome. So quite a before
0: pair. we get into Knowles, I had to go YouTube it before our interview to make sure I was pronouncing it right. So maybe you can teach us how to pronounce his name because the way it looks, it would be kind of like a canalis or something. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, of course this is one of those, uh, it it has a silent K at the beginning, which is not unusual in, in English, but, uh, you know, back, back in the day, it was not unusual for people to spell their name in a variety of ways. And, uh, The more common way that we would have to spell his name is K-N-O-W-L-E-S. In fact, his father sometimes spelled it that way. And it it occurs occasionally on a title page spelled that way for Hansard. Uh, His name also appears in a couple of other different forms. But the reason that we can be sure that it's Knowles, not only because K-N-O-W-L-E-S is pronounced that way today, but on the analogy of another very famous uh, English, uh, 17th century Englishman, and that's Samuel Pepys P E Y I'm sorry P E P Y S the diarist who uh he was um uh, in the uh secretary to the navy under Charles II and uh, I I think his diary is 12 volumes long I have copies of it here wow. uh he he's quite uh he was quite a cad he was a, a a wicked man but at the same time his diary is important because it gives us uh an insight into certain aspects of Political and social life in the 17th century, but his name is pronounced Peeps, not Pepys. So it's Knowles, not nollys
1: right. So I guess we can just start with some, you know, biographical information on Knowles. So maybe just walk us through, um, you know, his childhood, his conversion story, if we know anything about that, and then you know where he went to school and just who Knowles the man is before we get into more theological discussion.
2: Yeah, um, well, he has an interesting life. Both his father and grandfather were um, uh, ministers in the Church of England, and uh, of course, he ended up being a minister in the Church of England as well. They were from Lincolnshire, which is on the uh, east coast of Great Britain, um, just south of Yorkshire. Um, he, the his his the year of his birth is in dispute. Um, he he wrote an autobiography, brief, I reread it the other day, um, that only goes up through 1672. And then for some reason, he, he didn't complete it. But when he died, William Kiffin uh, published it with a little bit of an addenda, not much. But on the title page there, Kiffin says that he died in the 93rd year of his life. And we know that he died in 1691, which would mean that he was born in 1598. However, um, even even I thought that that was unusual because he went up to Cambridge around 1629, late 1620s. Uh, and if he were born in 16, uh, 1598, he would have been almost 30 years old when he went up to Cambridge, which is very late in life. Uh, more More commonly, a teenager would go to one of the universities. And so it has been more recently suggested that he was born in 1609. Uh, that makes sense with the, the the time at Cambridge University, but it also doesn't make sense with Kiffin's statement that he died in the 93rd year of his age. So so I don't know. Either way, he was an old man, whether he was 82 or 93 when he died in, in 1691. He was an old man. It, it was unusual. Even today, it's unusual to meet somebody in their 90s. Um, and it would have been not... not unknown, but unusual for someone uh, to live that length. So he basically lived uh, throughout the 17th century, uh, raised apparently in a godly home, and was sent by his father to Cambridge. He was at Catherine Hall, Cambridge, St. Catherine's College. Uh, Richard Sibbs was the master of the college while Knowles was there, and Thomas Goodwin was one of the fellows of the college while he was there. Now, that's not saying that he had any personal relationship with Sibs or Goodwin, but it gives you a flavor of what St. Catherine's was about when Knowles was there. It was a a Puritan oriented college within the church of England. Um, After graduation, he was ordained and another oddity about his life is that he was ordained a deacon. And then the next day he was ordained to be a priest. So his, his diaconal service lasted one day. And, uh, that you know, that seems a little bit odd to us, but there, there it is. And he became the minister of the, the same church that his father and grandfather had served in Lincolnshire. And he was there for uh, a while, but um, he had growing Puritan sympathies. And he came to reject some of the, uh, what we would call the Laudian innovations. Now, let me explain that term. William Laud was appointed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury by James, uh, Charles I. And Laud wanted to bring the Church of England back into something of a liturgical high church uh, type of worship. Uh, he didn't like Puritanism. He didn't like uh, the, the simplicity of Puritan worship. And so he instituted a variety of practices or tried to reinstitute those practices And the Puritans uh, strongly objected. And Knowles was one who he couldn't wear the surplice. The surplice was a white outer garment that uh, the priest would wear during the worship service. It looks very Roman Catholic. Um, uh, Laud wanted to reintroduce uh, what uh, I once heard J.I. Packer call smells and bells, uh, incense and, and other things that were done in worship and like, like many, many other Puritans Knowles objected. And so he, um, he stepped down from his Anglican ordination. Now, Anglican is an anachronistic word, but his ordination in the Church of England. And uh, ultimately went to New England and was there for three, less than four years, probably more than three, but less than four years. Uh, was, was in New Hampshire, um, ended up in some conflict in New Hampshire, perhaps then went to Long Island, what we now know as Long Island in New York, and then at the call of his father, uh, probably a, an illness on the part of his father, he returned to England in 1641. By then, of course, his Puritan sympathies are strong. He he had had enough time in New England to, uh, though he he didn't fit into the New England Puritan culture, I think he probably would have appreciated uh, the, the the non. Uh, the 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 non high church type of worship that would have been present in New England, and so when he comes back to England to London in 1641 or 1642, there there are many things that are happening in his mind that he ends up in Henry Jesse's church. Henry Jesse was is a really important um, early or mid mid century uh, Puritan who becomes a particular Baptist. Uh, Jesse was pastor of what was probably the first separatist church in London again in 1616. He was its third pastor. It makes sense that Knowles would end up in that church, but that church was being disrupted right then. That, now that's a strong word, and it it conveys to us the wrong thing. It was in the midst of profound discussions over the question of baptism. That I don't when I say disruption, it sounds like angry voices and mm-hmm. that's not that shouldn't be how we understand it. It is rather that they were really struggling with the question of infant baptism and believer's baptism. And Knowles came down on the side of believer's baptism. That seems to be where he encountered this. Henry Jesse himself was baptized as a believer in 1645. Um, So he he becomes a Baptist, and at that point, he is folded into the uh, the seven London particular Baptist churches. Uh, He has a church that he becomes pastor of and he leads that church. And uh, he's, uh, this this is, it's interesting what happens. He's in that church for about the next 50 years. In his autobiography, he states that up through 1672 and then Kiffin confirms it. But at the same time, there were a couple of years when he had to flee into exile in Germany. So he wasn't present at the church. And there's strong evidence that in 1648 he went back into the Church of England and took again, he became rector of the church that his father and grandfather had served in Lincolnshire, while at the same time remaining pastor of the Coleman Street Church in London. Now you know Dennis Buston in his books Par- Paradox and Perseverance asked the question, how do you do that? And of course, back then you didn't have even train service. To be able to go from Lincolnshire to London, it probably would have been a couple of days on horseback or coach uh, to get from the one to the other. Travel back then was not like travel today. And yet he held that living in Scartho and Lincolnshire, apparently up into uh, at least into 1660 or so, when his son then takes that living. So you get four generations of of the Knowles family who serve in that, that the pastorate of that church, while all the same time it's argued that Knowles is pastor of this particular Baptist church in London. Now, as Stephen Hobson said in a review of a book, he said that completely disrupts our understanding of the particular Baptists and their relationship to the church of England. And indeed it does. And we don't need to run down that, uh, that path right now, but, um, It is very interesting to to see that in his life. Anyways, the the church in London was a poor church. And so it was necessary for Knowles to support himself and his wife and family, seven sons, three daughters, uh, by teaching school. And uh, he spent most of the time when he was in London pastoring the church, but alongside of that teaching school. And he built up quite a, a strong school. If I remember correctly, there were, some 140 or so uh, scholars, and there were 15 or 20 who were actually live-in students. Uh, So he made his mark that way. He's one of the most prolific authors uh, among the particular Baptists. Uh, Benjamin Keech would be the most prolific, but Knowles would be second. And um, he also was, at least among the Baptists, he was regarded as something of a scholar in the languages because he published grammars in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew um, in the 1660s. Uh, all three of those were, were published. Um, so by the time you get to late in his life, uh, 1689, for example, when the London General Assembly was held, it was hosted by Knowles' Broken Wharf Church in London. They, they had to move around, of course, because of persecution and various circumstances. And by then they were at Broken Wharf, Thames Street, which is uh, right down on the river, you can still see a sign that says "Broken Wharf, uh, if you walk through there today. Um, he He would have been the oldest and probably held in uh, the the senior minister among the London particular Baptists. And so he's given a place of honor in the records. and and sometimes I've assumed it's just because of his age that he's the first name that you see uh, when you read the the records. It may, maybe there's more to it than that, but but I'm sure. Uh, they gave him the place of the honor. So whether he was 82 or 93 um, around that time, uh, he had earned that respect, uh, well-loved, um, and uh, passed away. And he's buried at Bunhill Fields uh, in London, which uh, if you if you ever go to London, you have to go to Bunhill Fields. It's, uh, I've said before, if I could be anywhere on the day of resurrection, it would be right there in the middle of that cemetery. <laughs> because all my heroes are buried there, all of them isn't your
1: son doing some work like mapping that out or, or something I thought you yeah. saw something on
2: yeah Sam and I have been there together a couple of times uh, if you if you go into the cemetery uh, it's fenced off so that there's a path you can walk down but we were able uh, legally with the permission of the groundskeeper to get inside the fences and walk around and, and search for I've actually been inside the fences twice Um but to look around and find graves and try to identify uh, John Bunyan's buried there, John Owen's buried there, Thomas Goodwin's buried there, Susanna Wesley's buried there, Isaac wow. Watts is there, Nehemiah Cox, William Kiffin, Hansard Knowles, John uh, John Gill. We we could keep going. Uh, wow, they're all there. Yeah.
0: So that's incredible. So I'm wondering why, at least from my vantage point, I don't know if people have been writing a ton on Knowles and it seems like Kiffin and Keech and these other ones get a lot more press. Is there a reason for that? Is it because he just didn't write as much, but you said he wrote a lot. So I'm curious why that's the case.
2: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, there have been a couple of major studies of Knowles that are, that are really worth looking at. Um, Barry Housen, who's a Canadian published um, his book, erroneous and schismatical opinions. I have it right here. Let me read the, subtitle, The Question of Orthodoxy Regarding the Theology of Hansard Knowles. Uh, It's published by Brill, which means it's an expensive book, but it's really excellently done. And he deals with um, a variety of theological issues that were charged against him, antinomianism, hyper-Calvinism, Anabaptism, Fifth Monarchy. And he deals with them, I think, really even-handedly and well. Another one that has been published that's uh, perhaps even better is uh, "Paradox and Perseverance," subtitled "Hansard Knowles, Particular Baptist Pioneer in Seventeenth Century England" by Dennis Buston. Uh, it's in the the Paternoster Studies in Baptist History and Thought series, which over here in the U.S. is published by Whiff and Stock. Same series that my "Edification of Beauty" is published in, and um, this this is a valuable recent study. One more recent book that has been published, and I'm somewhat disappointed in it, uh, by Mercer University Press. It's in a series, but it's called The Collected Works of Hansard Knowles, edited by William Pitts and Rady Figueroa. Um, I'm disappointed in it because of the choice of material that they they put in it. They, they didn't, um, it, it, it's selected works, really, of Hansard Knowles. And I think that they ignored some of his more important works, especially in, I think it was 1681, he did a book called The World That Now Is and The World to Come, and uh, they completely ignored it. And yet some of the things they put in there seemed to me to be irrelevant. So it, it, it has a helpful introduction, it has an appendix, but for $45, I'm not sure that uh, that what you're getting is the best that they could have chosen of, of Hansard Knoll's work. So. Um, if you can find a, a copy of um, Housen's work from Vril or Buston uh, from Whip and Stock, those are, those are worthwhile and useful. So,
0: how much more did he write than what's in that Mercer University collection?
2: Um, well, I'd have to go look at his off the top of my head. Uh, I'd have to I look. guess I'm partly just
0: curious, like if it's not a ton more, why would you neglect to include those extra pieces? Or is it like it would be like a five volume set if you include everything?
2: Um, if you ignore the the foreign language grammars, I, I don't think it would be significantly more. It it might end up being similar to one of the volumes, like um, Reformation Heritage has recently done with William Perkins, but that's doable in one volume. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just I don't know why they they chose to do it in this way.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, so I guess more for his uh, the own content, I want you to maybe unpack so what were the key theological contributions that either a were original to him or B he expanded in ways that hadn't been expanded quite yet?
2: Yeah. Well um, I think his language learning was important um, and unusual perhaps for uh, a lot of the Baptists. Um, there, There were some, but not many who had university training. And so he could contribute. And, and I know that he served as, a, um, in the background sometimes as a reference for others in terms of Greek or Hebrew words and, and their meaning and use in, in the Old and New Testaments. Probably more interestingly was his eschatological views um, because he he certainly uh, was fascinated and wrote a lot about eschatology. He has a, a, an exposition of the Book of Revelation and then an exposition of chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. And then he has this volume that I, I just mentioned, The World That Now Is and The World That Is To Come. And in all of these, he's dealing with uh, uh, primarily future events and what will happen. Now, he, he's a man of his times. One of the mistakes that we make is reading back our eschatological views into the 17th century. They were not well defined. They wouldn't know what a pre-trib, pre-millennial belief is. It's it just not, not for them. They would know the, the term kiliasm, which means millennialism. But even then, they wouldn't necessarily have believed in a literal thousand-year reign. They would have believed in some kind of earthly reign, but it didn't have to be a thousand years. And uh, Knowles, Knowles viewed, uh, he he was like his day. He had a historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation. Now, historicist interpretation of the book of Revelation, today, most of the commentaries that you have on your shelf will be futurist, okay? But a historicist sees the book of Revelation as a prefigurement of the history of the church, an apocalyptic writing of what Christ intends to do in the history of the church until he comes, so that there's a a cumulative procession. And one of the questions that the historicist is always asking as he interprets the book is, where are we at now? Are we in chapter 11? Have we progressed to chapter 12? Or are we at chapter 13? And so you find Noel's exposition of the book of Revelation very much reflecting that kind of an idea. And it, it ends up with some oddities. And they're scratch-your-head kind of, huh, oddities. For example, he predicted that a major event would take place in England in 1689. Well, there's a change of monarchy in 1688, 1689. He predicted this as if the end of the world is coming. And, you know, you you read that and you say, huh, well, he was wrong, but uh, (laughs) it's hilarious. And, of course, uh, London is the great poor Babylon. And the two prophets who uh, prophesy and then are killed and lay in the streets and come back to life, that'll be in London. And uh, you you get all those kind of quirky views of the book of Revelation. So uh, maybe that's why they chose not to do some of those things in this collected works, because they they are, yeah, we'd read them today and say, hmm, I don't think so.
1: Did he have any... I guess you'd say conversation partners, like people that he debated back and forth with, whether that be other Baptists or maybe Presbyterians or or Congregationalists that um, over different ecclesiological issues or
2: whatever it may be. Yeah, that that's an interesting question. I would say more so in the 1640s than later, and of course that's because in the 1650s you have an attempt at uh, comprehension uh, during the, the Cromwellian period. Uh, the, the Congregationalists and the particular Baptists. And to some degree, the Presbyterians are trying to find common ground and work together. 1640s isn't like that. And once you get to the restoration of Charles II in 1660, all bets are off because persecution comes on everybody. Hmm. Okay, But in the 1640s, you see that. When he returned from New England uh, in 1641, he was helped by a physician, a Presbyterian physician named John Bastwick. But by the time you get to 1645, he's writing against Baswick because Baswick represents a high Presbyterian view and Knowles is representing an independent congregational view. Uh, In fact, it's interesting the the language that is used, very very evocative language. Knowles characterizes Baswick's view as Presbyterian hyphen dependent and his own view as Presbyterian hyphen independent, meaning Presbyterian dependent views the the presbyters as part of a larger presbytery, as part of a synod, as part of a general assembly. Presbyterian independent would say the church has elders, but those elders are not subject then to a greater Presbytery Synod, General Assembly, etc. And that's the language that they use. So they go back and forth. He was called before the Westminster Assembly for some of his preaching. Um, He was not particularly given to uh, controversy in the way that some others were. So apart from interacting with Bastwick, um, I don't think that there's very much in which he's going back and forth with, with any particular individual about, but I think that that's also due to the the circumstances of the 16, after 1649, the the Hmm. circumstances are very different.
1: That's helpful. I think one of the things that's most interesting about Knowles is that, you know, his lifespan, um, you know, he was, he was an adult for both the first London confession, and he was still alive when the second London, um, was drafted and then released about a decade later. So, um, what is his relationship to those specific confessions, but also just confessionalism in general? Like how, how would he have viewed, um, the way a church um, should use a confession of faith?
2: Yeah. Um, that's good. Um, he he becomes important w- with the 1646 edition because he interacts with um, Daniel Featley just in terms of acknowledging that some of the things that were written in the 1644 were not well stated and had to be corrected. Um, so you see, his name appears as one of the signatories in 1646, and then again in 1651. And because of his university training and background and, and probably his age as well, he would have, he was at least eight years older than Kiffin and perhaps even uh, 16, 17, 18 years older than Kiffin, if, if 1598 is his, his birth date. So he's, he becomes one of the senior men in the particular Baptist circles in London and gets a, a level of respect for that. So he's certainly involved in the first London. Um, as I said, he's very important in, in terms of Second London because his name appears first in the list of uh, those who were present at the 1689 General Assembly. His church was the, the host church. I don't know what that means. I, I, they, I don't know if whatever place they were renting for their worship, if that's where the assembly met. There's 100 men, more than 100, who came. Uh, where did they meet? don't know. But he's he's very much involved in that. And uh, he makes occasional reference uh, to second London in his writings once, maybe once, once, maybe twice. Um, he, he would have been part along with, uh, well, I don't know. I don't remember that Knowles specifically addresses the confession of, I'm, I'm sorry, the question of subscription to a confession. But Kiffin does. And Kiffin viewed... Um, it's, it's an interesting story that would take too long to explain, but circumstances were such that Kiffin had to weigh in on this question, and when he did, he said that it would be hypocrisy. He used very strong language: hypocrisy, to say that you believed one thing but actually believed something different. And so um, Knowles, I'm sure, would have agreed with Kiffin that this this was the uh the commitment of those men they they were putting their lives on the line in a sense by publishing their confessions of faith Un, in a period of persecution for both 1646 and 1677 um you had to mean what you said yeah what a, what a conf- sorry jordan just a quick follow up
1: and then you can would a confession have been used in any way as a, a teaching tool in the life of the church during this time? Or is that, you know, that's how it's used a lot today. That's the reason I ask. I didn't know if that was a practice back then or if that was a later development.
2: Yeah. Um, in Bristol, Broadmead, Bristol, which was one of the important early churches, there's actually, and I have photographs of the manuscript. There's a manuscript by, by one of the pastors, Thomas Hardcastle, that is that works its way through the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, and it was sermons that he preached uh, okay. in order to instruct the people. Now, when he gets to baptism, of course, he's a Baptist. Uh, but he, he preceded the Baptist Catechism. He, he was doing these long before the Baptist Catechism was written. So the only catechism available was Westminster. The reason that there is a Baptist Catechism is that the General Assembly in London determined that families needed to have such a document in order to be able to train their children. Um, When there are a couple of instances where men came out of the Arminian or general Baptist churches to join particular Baptist churches, and they were asked to subscribe to the second London confession in order to demonstrate their orthodoxy. So certainly the confessions had a living role in the life of the churches. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah, that's good. So, Maybe I I want to ask a question, I guess, about his understanding of piety. So I know guys like R. Scott Clark have written that the Reformed have a very specific understanding of piety and what that looks like in the individual Christian life, what that looks like in the church's life, centered around the ordinary means of grace. So is Knowles, is he in that type of trajectory of understanding piety alongside how the more traditional reform would understand it. And how is that somewhat different, I guess, from our contemporary piety, which seems almost hyper individualistic on your own personal prayer time, personal Bible reading, and is almost divorced from the local church context.
2: Yeah. Um, Dr. Clark was my neighbor when I lived in Escondido (laughs) and, uh, we were friends. Um, but I think that sometimes Dr. Clark um, paints a picture that's a little bit more black and white than reality. And uh, I think Knowles' piety would exactly reflect the greater piety of uh, Puritanism in its day. And of course, the uh, if I can put it this way, the air that they breathed was an air of the, uh, the ordinary means of grace. That was uh, what what it was all about. And so that, you know, for example, in his autobiography, he mentions the fact that while he had to flee to Germany for a couple of years, the church continued to meet every week. That was important to him because that was a demonstration of the piety, the the, the commitment of his church people. And so it certainly was centered around what we call the, the ordinary means of grace. Now, the reason that I say that... Um, it's not quite as black and white as sometimes it may seem to be. Is, for example, the question of literacy in the 17th century. Um, it's very difficult to put some numbers on literacy, but one of the reasons that there was an increase in the ability to be able to read is that Puritanism wanted the Bible to be read in everyone's homes, and uh, one of the the recommendations that was regularly made long preceding. Uh, Any time that Hansard Knowles was uh, in ministry, certainly throughout the 17th century, and I'm, I'm thinking all the way back to the, the turn of the century at least, they wanted at least one person in every home, even if it was only a child, to be able to read so that the Bible could be read in the home. So that, that kind of um, the church and the church only kind of piety doesn't really reflect, at least in England, what Puritanism was all about. Uh, Dr. Clark might say, well, you know, the Reformed were on the continent and the Puritans were the Puritans. Uh, I don't, I don't know if he'd say that he might. Um, But I think Knowles, we can say that Knowles would have reflected exactly what Puritanism was all about. And that would be characteristic of at least the particular Baptists throughout the 17th century.
1: So sometimes when we have uh, a guest on to discuss a particular figure from history, we like to kind of ask a question um, about what that figure would say to Baptists today. So let's say we could get Hansard Knowles on a time machine and bring him to America in 2020, and he could see um, what Baptist life looks like, um, what the average Baptist church, how it goes about its business, how it worships. Um, what do you think he would want to teach the church today? Would he? Um, what would he be encouraged by? What would he be um, discouraged by? Um, how How do you think he would he would handle that situation?
2: Wow, that's uh, that's not the easiest question. Just
1: knowing answer. what you know about yeah. what he's written and and what he's about.
2: Yeah, um, I would I would say. Well, you mentioned worship. I think he would be very troubled by contemporary worship in churches. Um, even probably the use of musical instruments in worship. Uh, you may know that in the 1690s, there was a major controversy that deeply divided the particular Baptists in London over the question of whether or not singing should be done in worship. Not, not just what should be sung, but the fact of singing. Knowles was on the side of the singers. Uh, he was an old man by then and uh, but he he clearly was on the side of those who believed that singing was part of worship but they they would not have uh, been in favor of musical instruments now don't take that as my view you you ask me what what he <laughs> right. would think okay yeah. I, I i don't have an issue with musical instruments in worship just to be clear so that when people are listening to this they don't go say oh Renahan's against Musical instruments. I, I'm, I'm. You asked me what Knowles might do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure that he would be shocked and saddened by a lot of contemporary worship that is individualistic and and uh, sort of the God is my girlfriend type of uh, songs that that are sung that are not really worshipful but um, are self centered. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would also be troubled by the, the breadth of theology that is present in evangelicalism. He, he was a committed Calvinist. And uh, the, 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 the streams of Baptist life in England, simplistically, you have to understand that it gets more complex than this. But let me, let me oversimplify and say there's two groups, the general Baptist and the particular Baptist. They, they had very little interaction with each other. And Knowles would have been troubled by the the doctrines of the general Baptist, and I think if he looked at Baptist life today, he would say, "The general Baptist won that th- that's the case." Mm-hmm. And I think he would be troubled by that. Um, those two things immediately come to mind there if If I had more time to think about it, there, there might be other yeah. examples.
0: So for those who want to read more just about him in general, I know you mentioned a couple of resources. Are, are there any other maybe popular level resources on him that are good introductions? I know I saw, I think Michael Haken has a new book on maybe Kiffin, Keech, and Knowles. I, I don't
2: remember. It's three. Yeah, that's been out for about 20 years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but, it, it was yeah. just a new edition. It yeah, well, that, see, that shows how much I know. <laughs> that, that would be helpful. That would be useful. Um, and you can find on, on the used book market a couple of older uh, works. Uh, a guy named Pope Duncan, uh, interesting name. How'd you like Pretty to Pretty cool named? name. Pope? Yeah. Pope, yeah. <laughs> uh, wrote one. Uh, James Culross wrote another. I think the one by Duncan can actually be found on Google Books. Uh, James Culross. Um I think Baptist Press did that one probably 50 60 years ago. Those are useful and uh readily available. In fact, the one by culross I I've seen places who are trying to give away copies because uh they have so many. So if somebody could find those, those those would be useful. Um And Michael Kaken's book um that's about all that comes to mind right now.
0: Okay. Got it. So for those who are listening, who they, they want to keep up with what you're doing, with what you're writing, I know we've done another episode with you on the first London Confession of Faith and you're writing a commentary on it. I mean, I guess you, you're probably doing multiple writing projects, I, I imagine. And as they come out, where's the best place for them to be able to keep up with with where the when these are coming out, where they're coming out, those type of things?
2: Well, um, our administrators try to put this stuff on Facebook as it's coming out. And we, we do have a Facebook page, IRBS Theological Seminary. Um, so they could look there. Uh, Founders Press is doing the, the two-volume set on the confessions. Uh, the, the Journal of the Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies is available through Amazon. And uh, RBAP, Reformed Baptist Academic Press, does a lot of my books. Uh, and you can go to RBAP. I think it's RBAP.net and find things there. Uh, But Amazon has most most things. I don't know if they have everything, but they can find things there, too.
0: Good deal. Well, Brandon, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? I don't.
1: Nope.
0: Awesome. Well, we want to thank you, Dr. Renahan, for joining the show.
1: My
2: pleasure.
0: Uh, We want to obviously recommend you guys check out the seminary's website. I know in another episode we talked a little bit about it and mentioned that there's like a certificate program. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can just give me a high level understanding of the certificate, because I think there's probably a good amount of our listeners who may be really interested in doing something like that.
2: Yeah. Let me me, if you'll allow me, let me mention two programs. Yeah, we have, we have the tip, the typical academic programs, but the certificate is, I think, about 15 credit hours that's intended mostly as. Uh, sort of continuing education for pastors, or we—I've met enough pastors who say, "I wish I could have come to IRBS, but you mm-hmm. know, so I, I graduated beforehand." Like you, Brandon, you know, you, you went right. to the I world. thought about the certificate program, So But we, what, what it is, is more or less not exactly the same, but it's similar to what we did in California to supplement the Westminster MDiv. Uh, five of the six classes are available online. The one that isn't that people would have to come to Mansfield for is Dr. Dolzall's class. Uh, intro to Philosophical Theology, which is taught in a week. So it means coming here for a week. And we, we have been able to um, generally house people who come so that uh, we're, we're trying to keep the costs as low as possible for everybody. But that can be done online. Right now we have several people uh, uh, in England who are enrolled in the certificate program and involved in, in working on that. So uh, that could be useful. The other one that I wanted to mention is, um, you know, in in all the years I was in Escondido, I regularly met men who were, let's just say, 35 years old, married with three kids, two kids, and they don't have a bachelor's degree. And yet their church believes that they have the gifts and the graces to go into the ministry, but they can't go to seminary. So what do they do? Well, we have developed a diploma program for them which is basically the same as the MDiv, but without the degree. And uh, it's intended specifically for that type of guy who his church believes that he has the ability, he shows the grace of God in his life, he's, he's well-loved by, by the people in his church, and he wants some training. And he can come and he can basically do the MDiv, but he has to understand from the start he doesn't get the degree, he gets a diploma at the end. But we're, we're about training men for the ministry, not about being an academic institution to be an academic institution. And so that it fits our purposes to have a program like that. And uh, you know some of the, the best students that I've ever had are the guys who are 35 or 40, uh, who have some maturity in their lives and, and they really believe that this is what God wants them to do. And so they, they, uh, they work hard at their studies and at their ministerial gifts. And that's what the diploma program is all about.
0: That's great. Well, for those who are listening, whether you're interested in it or not, I think it's you, you can recommend it to your own fellow church members if you're a pastor and you've got men who are considering further studies or preparation for ministry. Uh, I know we've got quite a few listeners in Texas. I know Texas is a huge state, so maybe you're not like right next door, but it's still pretty close comparatively speaking. So uh, we definitely commend you guys checking them out uh, and recommend what they've got going on. So thanks Dr. Renahan again for taking the time to talk with us. And for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and Conventional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in.